Um, so we're going to continue in this series. We've been calling the series through the book of Acts. We've been calling it the action of the church because that's what the book of Acts is about, is what the first church was doing. And so if you have your Bible, if you could, you could turn it to Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 19 through 31 this morning, and I'm calling this sermon Five Questions. So if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been recently introduced to a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And I would describe Saul like this. I would say he is not on team Jesus. He, he's not a follower of Jesus. He's not a fan of Jesus. He's not on team Jesus. And he is quite possibly the, the, the biggest opponent to team Jesus in all of the known world at this time. But then came the day where Mr. Anti-Jesus, he came to meet the one and living Jesus. Then everything changed for Saul on that day. If you remember what happened, there was this day, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's going out there to, to imprison Christians, the followers of Christ. He's going to drag them out of their house and throw them in jail. And he's on the road, and all of a sudden there's this bright light that's so intense, it knocks him to the ground, and he hears a voice from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul replies and says, who are you, Lord? And then this divine being with the bright light, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then old Saul, he's struck with blindness. Now, if you think about this, he's on the road to Damascus. He's going there to beat, to, 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 to rest and possibly beat up Christians. He's being, has this entourage with him. And then he's met this bright light. He's struck with blindness. So what happens in one moment, there's Saul, the hunter of Christians. That's how I think, like to think of him. And he goes immediately to Saul, the blind guy that's being led around by others. Saul got humbled real fast on that day, didn't he? Well, if you're someone that likes a good story, well, then I would suggest that all of Acts chapter 9, it's really for you. Because it's the story of a changed life. One minute, here's this man that's, that's breathing threats against the church, and the next minute, he's struck blind. Then he's led around like a small child. He's being happened to be helped by those who were there to, supposed to help him arrest these Christians. And, and this, is, this is really quite a story. You know, most stories that we hear, it kind of goes like this. It's like, I was really a somebody. I was a somebody, and, and, or, or maybe it was a story I was a nobody. Maybe the story goes, I was a nobody, and then I worked real hard. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I really made something of my life. That's not the story of Saul. Saul's story would go that I was the somebody. I was really blowing and going. I was doing great things, so I thought for the Lord, and then I met the real somebody. And that real somebody made me realize that I'm a nobody. And then he had mercy and grace on me despite how awful I was, and he changed me. That's the story of Saul. So I want to look at Saul's testimony today, and I want to ask ourselves five questions. These five questions for all of you that we should be asking ourselves based off of Saul's testimony to see if we can say that something similar about our testimony. Because if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, well, first off, this message is for you. And I'm saying this to encourage you, because maybe you were not a murderer of Christians before coming to faith in Christ. Maybe you were, I don't know. But, but I think there's elements of Saul's story that we should, just parts of it that every single one of us should be able to see in, in our own testimony. So let me begin by asking you a question. Here's question number one. What were you like before you came to know Jesus? That's the first question. What were you like before you came to know Jesus? 
So if you're with us today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, first off, I want to say thank you. I I love it when non-Christians come and they're checking out a service. So if you're that non-Christian, I pray that you'll consider by the end of this message, at the bare minimum, if you won't give everything to Jesus. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus really is asking for a lot. He's asking for your life and your, your soul. He's asking for, for, for everything of you. He's also asking for your sin, your filth, your shame, your guilt. Jesus wants it all. But then I will say he's absolutely worth it. But for the Christians here today, the question is, what were you like before you came to know Jesus? For me, my story's like this. I was 29 years old when I got saved. And I was very successful in the line of work that I was doing at this time. I had a a big house and a nice car and and tons of money. But the truth is, I was empty on the inside. I was trying to find contentment in all these things that are never designed to bring me contentment. And I was empty. It's kind of like trying to drink ocean water to, to quench your thirst. If you've ever been to the ocean, it's beautiful, and the water looks delicious, and if you drink it, it only makes you thirstier till you drink and drink and drink, and it'll eventually kill you. That's what I was trying to do, to fill my life in things that that cannot bring me contentment. Well, today we're looking at a man by the name of Saul. Saul eventually goes on to change his name to Paul, And, and Saul tells us that he was a religious man. And when I say religious, I mean like very religious. This guy was over the top. He believed that he was on a mission from God. He thought that he could not be stopped, and all that he's doing, he's trying to do it for God. And I would say he's relentless, but he was relentless in the wrong direction. He, he, was, he was relentless for the wrong cause, for the wrong mission. And we're, we learn when we read the story of Saul, he hated Christ. He hated Christians. If you were to ask a Christian of that day, hey, what is the greatest threat to the church? Probably most of them would point to Saul of Tarsus. They would say he's the man that if this church is going to be stopped, it's going to be, it's going to be stopped because of him. When you think of Saul, he's really not all that different from a member of ISIS, a member of the Taliban. That is pretty much who Saul is. And, and, and he, 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 was, he was murderous. He did not like Christians. Well, I say that and I say, how about you? What were you like as a non-Christian? What were you like before coming to know the living God? Here's the second question. Question number two. How did your view of Jesus change? How did your view of Jesus Christ change after you came to know the real Jesus? Because if you would have asked me before I came to know Christ, what do you think about Jesus? My answer would have been, oh, he's a nice guy. He's a good example for us to follow. Probably I would have said something along the lines of, well, we should probably try to be more like Jesus. And if you would have asked me, is he God? I would have said no. No way is he he God. He's not God. He might be God's son, but he's not God himself. That probably would have been my answer. If you would have asked me, is he the Lord of your life? I would have said no way. Not a chance. If you say, do you listen to him? Do you live your life for him? My, my answer would have been emphatic, no. So I ask you, well, how how'd your view of Jesus change? For, for those of you who are new, new non-Christians, what is your view of Jesus? But for those of you the Christians, how did your view of Jesus change after you come to know the real Jesus? Well, if you were to ask that question to Saul of Tarsus, He would have said, Jesus is a godless man. 
He would say that he is a blasphemer because he comes on the scene and he says that he's God himself. How dare he say he's God? Saul thought that Jesus was quite possibly the most godless man in in all of Israel. And he hated Christ. And he hated Christians because Christians worship Jesus as God. And then one day his view of Jesus changed. We saw earlier in chapter 9 that there is this bright light from heaven and it shines on Saul. And Saul has a literal face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And his entire world changed. Saul does a 180 after coming to know Jesus. And let's pick it up in, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, halfway through 19. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. If you have a pen, underline the Son of God. Saul goes on to say, And all who were with him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who were called upon his name? And he has not come here for this purpose, but to bring us bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all and more strength and and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. If you have underlined the Christ. So those are two two titles that that Saul is using to describe Jesus. Saul is using those two terms to encompass exactly who Jesus is. And it is the Son of God and the Christ. And I really want to spend some time here camping on those two titles. When we look at those two titles, I think we need to look culturally for a minute. Okay, What did those two terms mean to the people 2,000 years ago that were hearing Saul speak? What did it mean to those people? Because if we can understand what those people understood those terms, and I think we can understand what Saul was trying to tell us. You know, that's one reason why the word police today, they're constantly trying to change the meanings of words. Because if we can change the meanings of words today, essentially what we do is we erase history and we can never know what people back then were trying to tell us. So I want to look today, what did Saul mean when he said that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ? And what did the people that heard those terms, how did they interpret it? When When Saul says that Jesus is the Son of God, when Jesus said that he is the Son of God, that is a direct claim to be God. That is a direct claim to be divine. You see, in our day, we kind of define ourselves by who our dad is, and some of us don't like that, but we still do that today. And there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. You read your Bible and it says so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. You know, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so and so on and so forth. Well, Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, my father's God. Think about this. No one has ever said that before in the history of time. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, my father's God. Jesus did have an earthly adopted father. His name was Joseph. And just so a side note, if you're adopted, you're in good company. So was Jesus. God bless you. But he says, ultimately, my father's not Jesus. Ultimately, my father is God. That's why he doesn't say, I'm the son of Joseph. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says that he is the son of God. We use this analogy in our day and age, like father, like, maybe you're saying it, son, right? And then Jesus shows up and he says things like, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus says things like, I and the father are one. What Jesus is saying is that the, the he and the father, they're on this equal playing field. That's what he's saying. He's placing himself on the same level as the father. 
That's what Jesus is saying. So people heard what Jesus said and they're like, wait a minute. He's saying he's God. Jesus is saying that he is God come in the flesh. We're like, whoa, wait a minute. That is, that is crazy talk there. Well, we need to know that Jesus was opposed, right? We read the Gospels, at the, especially at the end. He was greatly opposed and Jesus was arrested, and Jesus was ultimately crucified, and Jesus was murdered. you know why? Because he said he's God. And then Saul comes along, and he's a man that hates Christ. You know why? Because he said he's God. And he hates Christians because Christians worship Jesus as if he's God. But then Saul meets the real Jesus Christ. He meets the living Jesus Christ, and then he becomes a Christian. You know what Saul says about Jesus? Saul says he's the son of God. The second term that Saul uses for for Jesus, he says he is the Christ. That means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. It also means Savior. This isn't Jesus' last name. This is his title. This means the the, the word Christ, it, it really encompasses the person that comes with God's power and God's authority. He comes on God's mission. He comes for God's glory. That's the anointed one. This means the, the person that, that is, there's nobody like this person. There's nobody in the same category as this person. And Saul says, you know who Jesus is? Jesus is the Christ. Saul says that he comes with God's authority, with God's power, this unprecedented, unparalleled, unequaled power. Do you recognize a radical change in, in Saul's perspective on Jesus? How many of you, that's your, your story? At least to some degree. I know that's my story. I, I, I thought Jesus was a good man, but now I know he's a God man. I thought Jesus was a good example, and all of a sudden he's Lord, he's God, he's Savior, he's King, he's the Christ. Maybe that's you, and your, your complete understanding about who Jesus is is completely changed and transformed. You know, that's one way we know who the Christians are and who the non-Christians are. If you want to know if someone's a Christian, just ask them. Ask them, well, what do you think about Jesus? The question I like to pose to you personally, I want to make it personal to you, who is Jesus Christ? And if they don't say things like, well, he's the son of God, he's the Christ, he is God come in the flesh, he's my personal Lord and Savior, well, the truth is they're not Christians. And I'm not trying to be mean, because there's a lot of really, really nice people that are really, really wrong. Do you know you can be really nice and really wrong at the same time? Here's a fun question to ask, and I'm asking you a you again. How has your view of Jesus changed? And if somebody says, well, it hasn't, well, then chances are they have not met the real Jesus. Because everyone has some preconceived notions about Jesus, and everyone at one point in their life is wrong. And if you don't think that's you, well, then at the bare minimum, you have to consider that you're doing so much better than every single person in the Bible, and that fact should make you at least stop and think about about Jesus. And there's some people that say something crazy. They say something like, well, he was a good man. He was just wrong about being the God man. And I would say good men don't make mistakes like that. That's mis- the mistakes that sociopaths make. That's a mistake that cult leaders make. That's, that's a mistake that crazy people make. Because good people don't say, I'm God. Good people don't say, I alone can save you for your salvation, look to me. Good people don't say that if they are wrong. And all of Christianity comes down to this. What did Jesus say about him, himself? Is it true or is it false? 
Because if it's true, then Jesus is God. If it's not, then Jesus is a blasphemer. If that's not true, then Jesus was a man that claimed to be God, who's not God, and the, the penalty for that is death. And just so you know, if you don't know this, no other major world religion leader claimed to be God come the flesh. Muhammad did not say that. Joseph Smith did not say that. Buddha did not say that. The teachers of Hinduism, they did not say that. Jesus and Jesus alone said that. And we need to know that's why they crucified Jesus. You know, they did not crucify Jesus because he fed people. That's not why they killed him. They didn't crucify Jesus because he healed sick people. There's nothing wrong with that. No one's going to die for healing sick people. They didn't kill Jesus because he hung out with kids. That's not why they killed him. They killed him because he said he is God. And that statement is either true or it is false. There is no third option. And if that statement is true, then we should give our lives for him. We should live our lives for him. Because if that statement is true, nothing else in life matters as much as that statement. Let's continue reading. Look what happens in verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plots became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Verse 26, and when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Here's our third question this morning I want to consider. Question number three, how have you suffered for Christ? How have you suffered for Christ? Because part of being a Christian is suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of our sins. Sometimes we suffer because of somebody else's sins. But if you're going to be a Christian, if Jesus Christ has truly changed your life, guess what? You're going to suffer. That's not a message you hear in most Christian churches today, right? So-called Christian churches. But if you read the Bible, read it very carefully, that's what happens every single time to the followers of Christ. That's what happens to Saul. He was once a non-Christian, now that he's a Christian, he's beginning to suffer. Because his buddies have turned on him. They're trying to kill him. You know, the, the tables have really turned on all Saul, right? He used to be the hunter, but now Saul has become the hunted. Why? The answer is because he changed his alliance. At this time, they're living in a fortified city, if you will. There's walls and gates, and it's kind of like security checkpoints. It, it's, it, that's a, it's still that way in the Middle East today. And so there's these disciples, and they're trying to help out Saul, and they find this hole in the wall in the middle of the night. They find out that he's gonna be, they're going to try to murder him, so they put him in a basket, and they lower him down in a rope. It's an escape plan, if you will. And... Later, the Apostle Paul at that time, he he writes his his letter to the church at Corinth and he says, you know, that was kind of embarrassing that day that happened. Saul's like, that was a very humbling experience the day that they put me in a basket and I had to run for my life. If we're going to live for Christ, there's going to be situations like that in our lives that are sort of humiliating, that are very humbling. Because now there's these guys who are trying to kill Saul. These are the same guys he used to run with. These are the guys that he used to plot to kill Christians with, and now they've turned and they're trying to kill Saul. How many of you, that's your story? How many of you, you you became a Christian and you're like, man, my buddies don't want to run with me anymore. The guys who used to hang out with me all the time, they just don't want to, to, to hang out with me like they used to. Maybe for you, it's your family. 
Man, my family, we used to be so tight, but now we're not so close anymore. All of a sudden, I'm on the outs. We're going to see in a minute that, that Saul, you know, he was, he was rejected by the, his, the non-Christians. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to be rejected by Christians too. He's going he's to be rejected by the non-Christians. He runs to the, the Christians and, and, and they push him away too. But in all fairness, if Saul was with us today, you'd probably do the same thing. You know, we've got a bunch of small groups here at, 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 at Crosspoint. Now, if, if you're not part of a small group, let me encourage you, check one out. But let's say you're in your small group. And all of a sudden, a new guy walks through the door and you go, Hey, hey, Mr. New Guy, how are you doing? Tell me about yourself. What do you do? And Mr. New Guy says, Well, I, I'm a terrorist and I kill Christians. Whoa, hey, hold on a second. And he says, hey, I want to be part of your group. You'd be like, group? What group? There's no group here. He'd be like, this group, this group that meets here. Oh, this group? This is a one-time prayer group. And he'd say, a prayer group? Do you close your eyes and bow your head? Nope. Eyes open, heads up, and we pray around here. That's what we would do, right? Saul comes to your small group. That's what we'd act like. Now, the chances are we're not going to have a terrorist show up to our small group here at Cross Point. But guess what? It's very possible we have somebody with a very checkered past. But maybe that person with a checkered past is you. And if you're a Christian, there's going to be times that you're going to have to suffer for being a Christian. Maybe it's because of your past. Maybe you've been forgiven in the eyes of God, but it's going to take time. Take time to, to, for God to show everyone that He has really changed you. I also want to say that suffering allows us to become more like Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, there's this verse that says that Jesus was perfected through his suffering. And then guess what? If we want to become more like Jesus, guess what happens? You need to suffer. That's right. We have to suffer if we're going to become more like Jesus. We don't like that. But that's the truth. But I like to add something like this. Suffering also provides us the opportunity to become a witness. Because if something terrible happens to you, people are going to come up to you and they're going to say, How are you doing? In that moment, be honest. Your answer should be something like this. I'm falling apart. And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I'd be like shattered pieces of glass on the ground. He's the only thing that's holding me together. I don't want to say during the times of our greatest suffering, it can also be our times for our greatest witness. So be ready to tell people what Jesus is doing in your life. And even though we're in this valley, how we're held together by Jesus, be, be ready to tell somebody exactly what's going on. Here's my fourth question for, this, for us this morning. Question number four. What role does the church community play in your life? I, I, I need to say this. I, I, I know I say, I talk a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's true. Once you come to know Jesus Christ, it comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But that personal relationship with Jesus Christ will bring you into a family. A family of believers. In order to be a Christian, you have to be reconciled to the Father. Well, once you're reconciled to the Father, then, then what happens is we're reconciled to other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to see Saul and his interaction with this community of believers. Let's pick it up and look in verse 27 of Acts chapter 9. It says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
You know, here's what this is saying. Let me sum it up this way. The church was not so quick to embrace Saul of Tarsus as a brother in Christ. And it took a mediator. It took a go-between. It took this reconciler, this man of peace. His name is Barnabas. I call him Barney. Barney was a son of encourage, was an encourager, right? That's what his name means. It, it means that Barney had the gift of encouragement. There's two things that we know in the book of Acts about Barney. In, in Acts chapter 5, we learn that Barnabas was a very generous man. And here we learn that he's a very gracious man. I don't want to say this. These two things, they go together. That, that Barney, he's a, a giver because he gives his money. And here we see he gives his love. In Acts chapter 5, we read that he is a very generous man because he has this piece of land and he sells it and he gives it all to the church and it shows us that he's a generous man. But here, we, we learn that generosity is not just giving his wealth, but he's also given his love. And I want to say those two things go hand in hand. Barnabas, he is an encourager. encourager. He has faith and he has hope. He sees a man like Saul of Tarsus and Barney thinks, you know what, God can change that guy. I'm going to go to him, I'm going to talk to him, I'm going to, I'm going to investigate and see if God really changed him, because God can change him, I want to see if God really did. And so Barney says, hey, let me go talk to him. I think Barney, he's like Mikey from the old Life Serial commercials. If you remember the commercials, some of you are here old enough, some of you are not, but there was a commercial where there's these two, two kids in a bowl of cereal, one kid says, I'm not going to eat it, you eat it. The other kid says, I'm not going to eat it, you eat it. And they say, I know what we do, let's give it to Mikey. Let's see if Mikey likes it. And then Mikey eats it and he likes it. Well, I think that's Barnabas. I'm not going to go talk to Saul. I'm not going to go talk to Saul. Hey, let's have Barney go talk to him. And Barney talked to him. And hey, Barney, he likes him. For those of you that have the gift of encouragement, you have faith. You have hope. And I would say this, you're a gift. And I want to say this as, as your pastor, as, as the pastor of this church, you're a gift to me. Because I know that we, we need encouragement all the time. Part of your ministry is with the gift of encouragement is, is loving first so that others can be welcomed to the family of God. That, we, that maybe they have this strained relationship and you're the type of person that just encourages others. And praise God for those of you that are sons and daughters of encouragement. That's the type of guy Barney is. And you know what every church needs? I don't care what church you are, you need more Barneys in your church. If you ask any pastor anywhere in the world, I don't care if it's a church of four or four thousands, they will say they need more workers. In order to have more workers, we need more Barneys. We need more people to get involved and say, hey, you know what, you should really check out this ministry. Hey, you, should, you, you know, you're a perfect fit for children's church. Go down, check it out. I think, I think that'll really be a blessing to you, but you'd be a blessing to it. I need more Barneys. More Barneys just come alongside somebody and to encourage them encourage somebody to answer the call of God in their life and, and be all that God wants them to be. I would say my natural pro- proclivity is not to be Barney. My natural proclivity is to be like the apostles, going, you know, God like Saul, yeah, right. Good luck with that. But then Barnabas is that type of guy that just goes and then wraps her arms around them and brings them in and gets them some coffee and starts introducing them to people. We need more Barneys. Because Barnabas, he takes Saul to the apostles and he says, you know what, I, I talked with him and I met with him and I think, I think God has really changed him. I think he's a new man. I think God has, has a calling on this life and he's doing great things and it's all for Jesus. Think about this. 
Because we are Christians and we come to a place like this and we have these books in our hands and we open it up and we study this and we learn this and we've given our life to the study of this. But check this out. We wouldn't be what we are if it wasn't for Barney, right? Because we wouldn't have the words of Saul who, who goes on to change his name to the Apostle Paul and write at least 13 books in our New Testament had it not been for a guy like Barney. What would the Christian faith look like if we didn't have the letters of the Apostle Paul? We wouldn't even have these to consider had not Barnabas stepped out and done what he had done and brought, brought Saul to, to the, the, the apostles and he goes on to write all of these, these books. And I say this because sometimes those of you with the, the gift of encouragement, you think it's a, kind of an insignificant gift. You think, it's no big deal. It's kind of one of the lesser gifts, and I just don't have the cool gifts. So let me tell you, the gift of encouragement can change the world. Because here we are, we're studying the Apostle Paul's words, and we wouldn't even have them if it wasn't for a man like Barnabas. Let's keep going. Look in verse 31. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here's my fifth and final question for us today. Question number five, what are you going to do now that you know Jesus? What are you going to do now that you know Jesus? Because here, the church, it previously had this time of peace in the, in the book of Acts. and was all around Pentecost. This was during a time when thousands got saved. And I would say that's amazing. Then all of a sudden, the church of Jesus Christ had hit some real storms. And there's these people, the, the, these followers, these believers, they, they, they think they're on the, the way to the kingdom of God, they're right. But all of a sudden, there's these swells come up. There's these storms, there's oppositions, there's arrests. There's a, Stephen by the name, there's a deacon by the name of Stephen. He gets murdered. The church scatters. The people are fleeing. There's great turmoil. At this time, the church is in the middle of a great storm. And I don't know. Maybe we're in a time of peace. Maybe we're in a time of storm at Cross Point Baptist Church. Because we've had, we've had seasons of storms and all of a, or of calms, and all of a sudden the waves hit. The storm comes. Maybe you're thinking that was the global pandemic, right? I don't think so. I think things like that gets the church ready for something big that's to come. God allows storms in our life and also the church. So one, that we'll rely on Him. And two, that we'll go into an entirely different direction that He would have us go. And at the end of ends, I know how the story ends. I've read the end of the book. The story ends, and they lived happily ever after. That's how the story ends. We're just not to that part yet. We're not to the end of the story yet where we live happily ever after. We're to the part of the story where we're riding through the forest and arrows are getting shot at us and and we're trying to stay alive. The story isn't over. We're in the middle of the story right now. That's the middle of our lives right now. But in the end of ends, when it's all said and done, I know how the story ends. The story ends and they lived happily ever after. That time hasn't come yet. We're in verse 31 right now. We see the Holy Spirit. He's building the church it says that the Holy Spirit's building the church up, that the people are got, getting stronger. That means they're getting godlier. The Holy Spirit is teaching them because this is completely different than the way they've lived their lives before. It's a little difficult, but at this time, they're trying to figure it all out, and it's all by the grace of God. It says that the, the Lord was, was it, they were fearing the Lord, that the fear of the Lord increased. You know, when you're in a storm, there's a lot to be afraid of, Right? 
Maybe it's a personal storm for you. Maybe it's a church storm. Maybe it's a cultural storm. Maybe for you it's a vocational storm. Something's going on in your place of work. I don't know, but wherever you're at, storms can cause us to fear so much. And what happens when we live in fear, we live without any faith, and then we we don't have any hope, and as a result, we live without much love. Subsequently, we have anxiety and terror, and and we always go to worst-case scenario. Have you noticed that? When we fear, we always go, what is the very worst-case scenario? That's what's going to happen, and we live in fear. And whether or not that comes to pass, what happens, it robs us of joy and and love along the way. And I want to say this in the world, there's so much to be fearful of. You know, that's why the number one commandment is that what God tells us more than anything else is fear not. He tells us to fear not more than any other commandment in the Bible. And so often, right around after he says fear not, so often he says right after that, for I am with you. We're to fear not for I am with you. It's like a small child and they're scared and all of a sudden their dad shows up. You're a little kid, you're like, there's no need to fear, my dad is here. That's the Father God of the Bible. Because when he says fear not, he says, for I am with you. So you know, we shouldn't fear. Our dad is here. And you know, you're thinking, it's just not that easy, pastor. It's just not that easy. You know what I'd say? I'd say you're right. It's very hard to fear not. Because many of us don't understand because God is with us. And I think that we don't understand that because we haven't practiced it. Practice, and you're thinking, what, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let me tell you, I'm a wrestler. I love wrestling. And you know what you need to do in order to be great? You've got to practice. You've got to go into the room, and you've got to drill over and over and over. And, I mean, hundreds and thousands of times. You get into situations, and you practice it over and over. Why? So when you get on the mat, you can make it happen. Because if you don't do it in the room, you'll never do it in the match. It's the same way in life. If you're not practicing the, the little times to fear not, for I'm with you, how in the world are we going to do it when the big events come? Think about this. Who are the most content people you know? Go through all the Rolodex of the people that you know. Who's the people that, person that's the most content in life? I'll tell you who that person is. It's the person who's been through heck and back and has learned to, to let Jesus walk with them the whole way. That's who the most content person in your whole life is. But we don't do that naturally. It's a learned response. God allows difficult times in our lives so we'll learn to trust Him and learn to lean on Him and learn to walk with Him and not on our own understanding. This whole life is training for something big. And again, big events don't come every day. It's the little events that come every day. We trust God during those little times and those little things because if we don't, there's no way we're going to do it when the big events come. It's during the small events where we learn to fear not, for I am with you, that prepare us for those big events where we have to fear not, for I am with you. And we do that through life experiences. When I was a little bitty kid, I loved going to my grandma's house because my grandma had a house at the beach. When I say at the beach, I mean on the beach. You stay at grandma's house, it's at the back door, across a small patch of grass, down some steps, and your feet are on the sand. Unfortunately, that house still isn't the family anymore. I really wish it was, but it's not. But anyways, it was only a few yards till you'd be in the water. And then I would take my boogie board, and I'd run out there, and I'd hit the waves, and I'd start paddling out. And all of a sudden, there'd be a wave that comes. It was like, it seemed like a mile over my head. And would pick me up and churn me through the waters until the sa- I'm breathing water and sand, and I come up spitting and coughing. And there's times when I was in that water, I'm like, I think I'm going to die. 
And you know what? If I went back to that same house, down those same steps, across that same water and uh, sand into the same water, you know where those waves are hitting me? Right about waist high. What happened? What happened is I grew, right? And so now I can walk out to those same waves and, and it's no problem for me. That's where my illustration falls apart. Because I was going to grow physically where I wanted to or not. And the truth is, we don't grow spiritually whether we want to or not. Some of us have been those little kids, spiritually speaking, for 40 years. We're, just, uh, we're in the surf and, and the little things in life are just turning us upside down. You know why? We haven't learned to fear not because Dad is with us. We have to, uh, to, to choose to walk with God and know that He's with us and He goes before us and He fights our battles for us. And then those experiences allow us to grow. So my fifth question was, what are you going to do now that you know Christ? Are you going to live your life for Him or are you going to continue to live like little kids? Live in fear, being churned upside down. Or know that your dad's with you and he wants to walk with you. Now I asked, what are you going to do now that you know Christ? Are you going to live for Him? Or are you going to live in fear? But how about those that don't know Christ? I'd encourage you, I'd invite you, I'd beg you to come to know Christ. Maybe the Holy Spirit is prodding you right now. He's pointing you to to God the Son, saying come to to the Son so that you can know the Father. Because God the Son, He came and He died on a cross so that we reconciled to the Father. So if you don't know Jesus, why don't you come to know Jesus? You see, most of us, all of us really, there has to be this moment of clarity where you realize you're a sinner. And because of your sin, you're separated from God. And there's nothing we can do about it. No amount of being good will ever make up for our past sins. That's why we needed someone who is perfect to come in and and take our place on that cross. To pay our debt of sin and filth. That's what Jesus did. And when he hung on the cross, the very wrath of God was poured on him. Not because of his sin, but because of the sin of you and I. And then he died. He remained in a tomb three days until he came back from the grave, proving that he can grant eternal life and new life to whoever call on the name. And that's exactly what the Bible says. It says, whoever calls the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And if you've never done that, I want to give you the chance to do that right now. To bow your head and, and to say a prayer, something like this. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. In my sin, it separates me from you. But you love me, that yet while I was still a sinner, you entered time and you went to the cross and you died for all my filth and my shame. Take my guilt. Give me your, your grace, Lord. I give my life to you. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.